Oh, come on. You can do better than that. I want to make sure you're awake before I start. Good morning. There we go. That's better. You know, it's hard to get up there and, and start after that song, Behold Our God. I mean, it's a, I love that song. That's the reason why I picked it as one of the worship songs this morning. And Dave's not supposed to cry. You know, he's up there and his, you know, his, his contacts are floating out and I'm trying to keep from crying. I got to come up here and speak next, you know. So, um, great songs we sang this morning. Um, as was mentioned, I farm. I drive a truck. But my job is more than that. I feed the world. It's more than I'm just a farmer. I don't, you know, go out and plant seeds. You know, even despite what the what New York mayor said, farming's not that tough. There's a little more to it than that. But God has given me a love and a desire. He's made me, my purpose, I love to farm. I love it. I love being a steward of his, of his land, of what he's given us to take care of. I love seeing his hand each and every day. I see the, the, the life that he gives us through nature. I see the results of sin because we got weeds. They're kind of a pain. You know, water hemp's hard to kill. We spend a lot of money trying to kill those little boogers. But I love that. But he's also given me, because I love the Lord, and I love agriculture, and I have a heart of a farmer. He's given me the platform of agriculture to be able to share around the world and use the platform of agriculture to share principles of his word while sharing principles of agronomics to teach people how to farm, to do better, to be better stewards. Even though it doesn't play all that well here in the States because less than 2% of us are production agriculture folks, um, in other countries, when I go into villages um, and I go into the bush in Africa and I show up and, and you go to a, a service or you go to a training and you get up and you introduce yourself and you say, hey, I'm a, I'm a farmer from Illinois, from the States. And I've traveled before with Pastor Jeff and other pastors, Pastor Walt and missionaries and Pastor Jablani a lot in Zimbabwe. And you get up and you share and the people clap when you say you're a farmer. They don't do much for the pastors and the missionaries. You know, and afterwards they'll come up and they'll, they'll want to talk to the farmer. And they'll say, why are you here? Why would a farmer come here? And so it translates, you know, our love for the land and our love for farming and our love for growing things and being a steward of God's earth gives me a platform that I can share with folks. I live with them, I stay with them, um, able to share with them, and it, it's a, a bond that I built, because they're used to having pastors and missionaries come, and they just kind of blow that off. But it makes a difference when you just show up as a common person. So never take for granted that whatever you do, if you can use that as a platform to share the word, whether it's at your work or you're doing it somewhere else on a mission field, it's huge. God made you that way for a purpose. So one of the things I want to challenge you this morning is two things. Hopefully you stay awake and you actively listen. I'll try to make it so it's worth listening to. And two, I want to ask a question to start this off. Are you in touch with reality? Are you really in touch with the truth? I, I read things today on the internet or I watch the news or, or you know, read the panograph and it's like, people are nuts. People's gone crazy. And then I think, well, are they nuts or am I nuts? I mean, which, which one is it? Do I suffer from delusion, denial, or deception? And I want you to, to take that question and think about it for a second. 
even in my own spiritual life, I have to do that because sometimes my biggest problem is I'm self-deceived. I think I'm doing a better job than maybe I really am. You know, <laughs> I still think sometimes I'm 35 and in great shape. I don't have this extra out here. And my wife, you know, I said, hey, you know, I'm looking pretty good. I'm, I got a lot of energy and I'm losing weight. And my wife goes, you're delusional. What's the matter with you? What are you, you know, are you living in a state of denial? And I'm like, no, you know, but then I, you know, and I got a pet peeve, height and weight charts. How many of you like the height and weight charts, right? <laughs> they are slanted toward tall people. If you're a short person, you have baggage to deal with. And so if I was six foot tall, I would be perfect, you know? <laughs> so I have to either lose 30 pounds or grow five inches, and I haven't been successful with either one lately. So we'll see what happens there. But... <laughs> I do want to let you know I've been trying really hard, okay? I made a goal at the beginning of the year that I would lose 10 pounds, and I'm doing really well. It's, it's working good. I only got 15 more to go, and I'll be there. <laughs> so self-delusion, sometimes it's about perception. Um, I like the kind of warped humor of Gary Larson, and this is one of my favorites. He says, just think, here we are in the afternoon sun beating down on us, a dead bloated rhino underfoot, and good friends flying in from all over. I tell you, Frank, it doesn't get any better than this. It's like it's the best of times. It doesn't get any better than this. And sometimes we're doing things that maybe aren't, for us, our perception is, it doesn't get any better than this. And our other people are like, are you nuts? What's the matter with you? I enjoy farming. I love driving a tractor. I love driving a truck, and I spend a lot of time at it. I spend a lot of time alone, just kind of God and I, which I like that. I don't like crowds. I don't like lots of people. Um, that's just kind of the way God's made me, and, and it's, it works well for the, for the line of work I'm in. I mean, I can go for a week at a time, and I don't have much interaction other than with my wife or with my son who I farm with. And, and I'm fine with that sometimes. I also enjoy interacting with other people, but that's just the way God has made me, so I'm able to do that. But it also gives me a lot of time to think and reflect, and that's part of my nature too. I'm kind of melancholy. I can have a good pity party. It doesn't work over well because my wife never wants to join in and help me on my pity party, but, um, but God's been working on that for years in my life too. I've always enjoyed reading Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And I think before we start this morning, in our world today, as we, I think we probably all see there's things that aren't going so well. There's problems in our, in our country, in our world. And I think Solzhenitsyn had an amazing gift of being able to look at culture, look at people, and kind of see the psychology of the leaders, the psychology of the, the nations, and then be able to write it in a very profound way. I mean, he was a prophet that even a simple-minded guy like me could understand. He won the Nobel Prize. He won the Templeton Award. He won several other awards. He was um, in prison for many years in Russia because of his writings and his stand. In his exile, he came to the States. And through many years, I think in the 70s, he spoke at lots of universities in the States and around the world. And this excerpt I took out of out of his speech, the Templeton speech, always keeps coming back to me and reminds me. I mean, I didn't hardly a week goes by, I don't, I don't reflect on this. So if you have the opportunity to read his stuff, if you're not familiar with him, one of his best works, I think, it's a compilation of many of his speeches called Warning to the, Warning to the West, where he talks about 
challenging us, the West, that we're not going to fall from the outside. We're not going to be taken by the outside, but we're going to fall internally because we become apathetic, we become, become complacent, and we take our freedoms too easily. And as we, as we train our young people and as they come along, the ideologies are going to draw them away from the true freedom and the cost that was paid for it. I mean, isn't that pretty prophetic? I mean, he was doing, saying this back in the 60s and 70s. And you can, I mean, you can look a lot of this stuff up online. Matter of fact, this Templeton speech, I pulled this excerpt out. I mean, Google it. I mean, it just comes up and the whole speech is there. In it, he systematically goes through the history of the world and countries and World War I and World War II and what led to those wars and what came out of those wars and how they changed the culture of the world. And he goes on. But this one right here, this one kind of paragraph has always struck out to me. And he says, more than 50 years ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing the old folks offer an explanation for the great disasters befalling Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why this is happening. Since then, I have spent nigh 50 years working on the history of the revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have contributed eight volumes of my own. But if I were asked as concisely as possible the main cause of this ruinous revelation that killed more than 60 million of our own people, I could not put it more accurate than men have forgotten God. That's why this is happening. Isn't that true in our country today too? Men and women have forgotten God. Our leaders have forgotten God. Last week, Matt was sharing the statistics, which is a pretty sad commentary that no more than about 30% of our Christian leaders and pastors believe in God's word, have a Christian worldview. I mean, that's pretty sad. So if the leaders are that way, what about the common folks in the world? Would people be doing the things they do if they feared God? You know, Proverbs tells us the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, right? So why is it we see people that we think it's like, what have they been smoking? Man, they're dumber than dirt. They have no fear of God. They have no, no wisdom. God's not giving them wisdom. So I think that's, I just want to bring that up before we kind of get started this morning. So we are jumping in to Romans chapter 12. And Romans in my life has always been very, very important. Um, there's a lot there. If you only had one book, I think, that you had to read or could take with you if you were imprisoned or whatever, you're trying to disciple somebody, it'd be Romans because it, Paul covers everything. I mean, it's a massive thing. And, and Treg did a great job of the introduction of how it, in most of his works, he goes from the theology, the doctrine, and then moves it into the practical living. So that's why I've titled this Pathways to Practical Christian Living, How to Live a Godly Life. Um, sounds ominous, right? But it's not that... It's not rocket science, folks. It's pretty simple. Even I can do it. So if we stand with me as we read Romans 12 uh, in respect and reverence to God's word. Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to bring, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By the testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of themselves more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, 
So we, though many, are one in the body of Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You may be seated. Father, as we look now at your word, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul, the way that you revealed to him what you wanted him to write. And Lord, this morning, I would pray that I get out of the way, that you speak through me, that your Holy Spirit challenges and teaches and instructs each and every one of us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. First off, whenever you're doing any kind of a study, you need to look at the context, right? In the context of Romans chapter 12, before that's the first 11 chapters. And he goes, Paul goes through a systematic defense of the gospel. It's a systematic theology, basically, of God's love for us and his plan of salvation and how it works. And Matt did a great job last week in chapter 3, how we're justified through Christ. Chapter 1, he talks about the gospel and the power of salvation from God. 2, God's righteous judgment. 3, that we're all sinful and we have no hope. That righteousness is apart from the law. We can't earn it by following the law. The law shows us how far, far we fall. We're justified by Christ through faith. 5, abundant life is a result of justification by faith. Six, freedom from sin. Do you ever think about that? Paul is saying that after we've accepted Christ, after we accept the atoning sacrifice that Christ had paid for us, we are free from sin. We become joint heirs with Christ, that, Christ, that God sees us as his son, that we become co-equal and joint heirs with Christ. Chapter 8, life in the Spirit never separated us, uh, will never separate us from God's love. And as, as Treg read earlier in the beginning this morning. Then Paul breaks out in praise and worship. He just can't contain himself at the end of chapter 11. After going through all those things that he just said, he's like, oh, the depths and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. No one can explain the things of God or just that he decides and understand his ways. Can you understand God? My poor little pea brain can't understand God. Can the created understand the creator? Do we are we arrogant enough that we think we know more than God? Uh, I do sometimes, you know, I pull rank. Are we able to give him advice? No one has ever given God anything that he must repay. Yes, God made all things and everything continues through him and for him. All things come from God through him and for him and to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a praise. He just, his, he just can't help himself. He just, you know, worships. You know, sometimes one of the things I, I love about the farming and where I live is I live out in the country, okay? In the morning, I see God's glory and majesty in the sunrises. In the evenings, I see the sunsets. I don't have anything blocking my view. And, some more, and in the evenings when I'm out walking, and it can be dark, and Chris and I may be walking, and you see the stars, and, and I think of Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and you just, like, you just realize how small you are. I mean, that's one of the things I enjoy, like, like in, in, in Africa, and any, many of you have been there or in other foreign countries, I mean, there's no light pollution because, I mean, it's dark, real dark. Matter of fact, the first time I went there, I walked into a tree the first night I went outside. <laughs> so you learn real quick. Um, but you just feel like you're just like sucked into the universe because you just stand out there and you see the glory of God. 
and we worship that. So the first thing is the presentation of our bodies as sacrifice. He starts out and says, therefore, you know, when you see therefore, you've heard this before, when he says, therefore, you look at what it's there for, and it's what we just talked about, the first 11, first 11 chapters. And he moves on, and he says, hey, wake up. Are you paying attention here? I want you to listen to this. This is important. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. Or he says, I urge you, brothers. Depends upon your translation. And then he says, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And what he's saying is, because of what I've just told you, how can you do anything else but give your entire bodies as a sacrifice? And he says bodies there because that word that's used there means it's a holistic. All of us, everything, my hands, my feet, my mouth, all of me, since I am the temple of the Holy Spirit, that all of me can be used to worship the Lord, that I use all of it. I don't hold anything back. You know, as we talk about a living sacrifice, we know the old sacrificial system was a, a dead system, right? It was a one and done. You killed it, it was gone. You know, the problem with living sacrifice, we kind of scamper off the altar every now and then. You know, we come to church and we're like, oh Lord, here I am, I'm committed, you get all of me. And then we go home, and then this week something comes up, and kind of, you know, I'm easily distracted sometimes. It's maybe my, oh, there went a squirrel. You know, it's kind of like some distraction draws me away from the Lord. Or, or the, you see the knife coming down on the altar, and it's like, well, I didn't sign up for that. That part of my life I still kind of want to hang on to. Am I the only one that does that? You know, we kind of keep, and it's living the Christian life as a daily giving my life as a sacrifice to the Lord. I daily, it says, presenting. You know, in the Old Testament, the, the priest came and he put his hands on the sacrifice that the people had given him. And he slaughter, slaughtered that and then presented it to the altar, presenting it to God as a representation of the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the person who had brought it, who had repented of them and was transferring them onto the, and it was a representation and presented. And we are priests, right? We're called that we're priests of God if we're saved. We present our bodies. It's an intentional, I present my body as a sacrifice to be used by him. And then he goes on and said, this is your spiritual form of worship. You know, sacrifice isn't looked fondly today. And the verse right here, how did Jesus look at it? He said in Luke 9, if anyone, he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits himself? Some versions say forfeits his soul. And he goes on to say, Paul goes on to say, I have been crucified with Christ in Galatians, saying, No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for it is right if righteousness were through the law, basically saying, If I could do this myself, if the law saved me, Christ died in vain. He never would have had to go to the cross. But that's not true. And then in James goes on to say, We need to be doers of the word and not hearers, deceiving ourselves. I think that kind of goes back to that deceiving thing. Sometimes I self-deceive too. I think I'm doing a really good job, you know? And part of that self-deception is when I evaluate my Christian life, I look at it differently than when I'm evaluating your Christian life, your fruits. I look at your life, what you're doing, what your fruits, the outward appearances, what you're saying, how you're living. But there's a thing I throw in there when I do my own, and that's my intentions. How many of you have bad intentions, huh? You always have good intentions, right? 
You want to do what's right. You think you're going to do what's right. You're going to love the Lord. You're going to whatever. I really was going to read the Bible this week every day, but I got busy and it just didn't happen. I intended to, so the Lord knows I intended to. I really was going to pray more this week. And you know, last week, one of the people in the ABF had some really tough things they're going through and they asked for prayer. And I told them I was going to pray for them. And I really meant it when I told them, but, and I intended to, but I didn't pray for them this week until, and I didn't remember it until I saw him walking down the hall a while ago. But I really intended to do that. Sometimes we self-deceive, right? I think Satan uses that. You know, he's a deceiver. He's a liar. And then he moves on to talk about holy and acceptable to God, you know, which some, if you go through the Old Testament, there were some sacrifices that were not accepted by God, which is not a good thing. We won't go there, but not accepted by God. But the word used there is talking about your spiritual worship. It's your logical worship, which we talked about already. How can you not make the decision to serve God if you truly believe what he's done for you? It's your logical form of worship. So then we go on to say, what is worship? There's lots of differing and varying ideas out there. You know, did we worship this morning already? Possibly. Are we worshiping now? Of course. You know, we, we tend to put a very narrow view of worship sometimes. We have worship leaders, we have worship teams, we have worship pastors in churches, we have have worship songs, which I never quite understood what's the designation between a worship song and a regular song, but there's worship songs, right? What I found this one explanation, best one I could find, any and every expression of obedience, praise, honor, glory, adoration, and gratitude offered to the true God by a regenerated soul who knows the truth about God and loves him. The one thing that jumps out at me there is a regenerated soul. Someone who does not know the Lord, who has not repented of sin, who is not saved, cannot worship because they don't know God. They don't understand who God is. And we should do nothing but worship because of what he's done for us, right? I mean, if we truly understand, if we truly believe what we say we believe, how can we not worship? That's what Paul's saying. Logically, I don't know how you can do anything else but worship. And basically, everything we do, folks, if it's given to God, is worship, right? I mean, if I'm driving a tractor, if I'm mowing weeds, if I'm cleaning a toilet, if I'm talking to my grandkids or playing ball with my grandkids, that's a form of worship if I'm giving it to the Lord, right? That is what it is. And sometimes I think we lose sight of that. You know, Isaiah 64, 6 says, all our good works are like filthy rags. You know, one confession I have, um, I grew up kind of very legalistic. I'm a recovering Pharisee. Any of the other people out here recovering Pharisees? My spiritual gift was criticism. I could look at you and I could tell you exactly what's wrong with your life and what you needed to do to fix it. And if you didn't shape up, well, that was your problem. I figured you got what you deserved. Lots of compassion and love there, right? You know, Treg mentioned that earlier. You know, if we have the information without the love and compassion with it. You know, it's the same as disciplining your kids or raising your kids. You know, if they just hear, you got to do this, you got to do this, got to do this, one, they don't see it lived out in life. And if they don't see love and compassion and forgiveness for when they mess up, because fortunately God forgives me when I mess up because I do it quite often. And then he moves on into verse two about transforming of our mind. But first he says, don't be conformed. Don't be conformed to this world. And that's 
difficult sometimes, isn't it? It's easy to get pushed into the mold. I liked the, the expanded translation. It says, stop allowing yourself to be molded by the influence and the pressure of this present world that we live in. Stop allowing Satan to dupe you, con you, use you, trick you, promise you a life, love, and power through a seductive world system that will only deliver disappointment, defeat, depression, and make you a slave to the sin in the world, but allow God to completely change your inward thinking and your outward behavior. You know, how many of us buy the lie? Um, you know, we kind of chase the carrot to win the prize, you know? And sometimes when I'm a little deceived and deluded and confused, um, how many times do you stand in front of the mirror in the morning and go, I feel like a little kid who hasn't grown up yet and I just really don't know what I'm doing yet. Any of you ever feel like you haven't grown up or matured yet? Maybe that's just me because I haven't. But, um, you know, when do you reach that point of maturity? Probably when we give our lives to the Lord and when we're seeking uh, His will in our life, right? But he says, so what do we know about the world? Well, he's talking about the world here. It's not about the world physically. He's talking about the world system, right? The things that influence us. Um, the God of this world blinds the minds of the unbelievers. Satan's good at that. The wisdom of the world is folly to God. You know, in the first part of, I think, Corinthians 1, he talks about using the um, simple things to confuse the wise. Well, I'm a simple thing, and so I can confuse people. I'm confused sometimes, so I can confuse people. But God can use simple things he can use you if you give your life to the Lord. Then he says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. But this world passes away and its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Then he goes on to say, This one, one always convicts me, you adulterous people, which James, you know, he always he kind of gets right to the point. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend with the world becomes an enemy to God? Do you think about that? When you are embracing the world, you are hating God because you're loving the world. And I think if you, one easy way, he talks about adulterous. If you came to your husband or wife and said, you know, I found this other, if I came to Chris and I said, I found this other woman whom I really love and I love you too and we're going to have a relationship where we love each other and, and I love you and, and how do you think she would feel? She's going to feel like I've turned my back on her and that I, that I basically hate her. Do we ever think that our relationship with the Lord, he's a jealous God, Right? He doesn't want us to seek after other lovers. I mean, you know, there's a whole book in the Old Testament written where God's prophet is, Hosea is Mary's Gomer, and, and about God's using that to explain the way the people of Israel, the Jewish people, have turned away from him on multiple occasions, yet he still forgives them and brings them back. So we just need not to conform, right? We don't conform to the world. We live weird lives. We look different, right? I mean, there's sex out there that they dress funny. They don't drive cars. They don't have electricity. I don't think that's what Paul is telling us to do here. He's telling us not to be part of the world system. It's more about that internally. You know, we're changed from the inside out. And it's how we, you know, we may look different. And I guarantee you, if you're living a life seeking after God, you're probably going to look different. You know, light 
light really shows out in darkness, and you're going to look a little strange if you don't do some things. But it may not be that your outward appearance of the way you dress and what you do may not be it. It's the way that you live your life. There's some ideas that are influencing our culture. They're even kind of seeping into the church today. I think we have to be very discerning. Part of following after the Lord is he, we pray that God would give us wisdom and discernment to know. Because the problem with deception is there's usually just enough truth rolled in with it to make us think about it, right? So sometimes we're easily deceived. So one of the things, follow your heart. I mean, a lot of movies, even Hallmark movies, you know, follow your heart if you love him, you know. Disney movies, follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Trust your gut. Love yourself and love others. Love yourself and love others. If you can't, can't love others, so you love yourself, right? Pursue what makes you happy. You know, that's const- what in the preamble, and we're supposed to pursue happiness, you know, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Let your true self shine through. The Bible contains some words from God. Jesus is one good example of how to live our lives. Jesus is one of the ways to God. The Bible is an old book and has been misinterpreted for years. The Bible is a good book, but it has outdated ideas. God loves everyone and is inclusive, excluding no one. So as we want to be transformed, he's talking about not being conformed, we're to be transformed. It's the same word, the Greek word that we get metamorphosis from, a total changing. And the aggressive illustration we understand, you know, worm turns into butterfly, how many of you still feel like the Christian caterpillar? I do some days. But you know, the thing I realize, especially in reading Galatians and Philippians, God sees me already as the butterfly. Because he sees me through Christ. If I've you know, repented of my sin and turned to the Lord, I'm a co-heir. We just saw that in the earlier parts of Romans. I'm co-equal with Christ. He sees me already as a finished product. He doesn't see that sin in me. You know, on the farm I weld. I weld things. I try, I'm not very good. But I, I weld things. You can't look at the, the ark on a welder. It will blind you. You can't see at all when, when, when you're welding. But when you put on that helmet, it has a shield that filters out the brightness and the, the, the bad rays. That's, to me, that's the way God sees me. He, I'm, all my gunk, which is a lot of it, is filtered out because he looks through Christ and sees me. And I think that's important that we, we understand that sometimes. He says, we all beholding in the glory of the Lord are being transformed. So how are we transformed? How do we transform our minds? By reading God's word. By being in fellowship with the Lord, right? You know, this book, God's revealed himself in it to us. We don't have to go looking for him. It's not some kind of mystical voodoo. It's right here. He explains his nature, his character, his love, his plan, his purposes. It's all right here. You know, in 1977, um, God brought a very beautiful young woman into my life. And we dated for a little bit at the end of 77. 1978, she runs off to France for a year to do a student abroad program. And I figured I'd probably never see her again. But anyway, I started writing letters, and she wrote me letters. And I learned to love my wife because of, through letters because I got to know her nature, her character, her likes, her dislikes. We talked about how... The, we had goals and dreams and the way the Lord was working in our life and how he was working through things in our life. I got to know Christine Lawson, her true nature through her writing was her. She got to know me through my writing. How do we get to know God? By reading his word. It's there. 
We take that so for granted. It's his revealed word. We just need to be in it and reading it. And so everybody wants to know God's will. He goes on to say, you know, we can know God's will by the renewal of our mind. We can know God's will. We all struggle sometimes with God's will, but that's also here in God's word. His, his will is revealed to us. It's not something that I, I've been praying about. The Lord will give me a sign and I walk out in the parking lot after church and I see a rainbow and the Lord has answered my prayer. It's not some mystical thing. I would challenge you that lots of times or anyway in my life, <clears throat> I know God's will. I just not willing to do it. I don't want to follow through. I don't want to be obedient. You know, in, in Psalm, I think it's 117, 105, he says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Back in those days, they would have carried a small lamp or lantern. wouldn't have been very bright. It had been like a little bowl with oil and a, a wick in it, and they would have carried it at night kind of out in front of them. So they, you're only going to see the next step or two. And, and that's kind of God's will. And you, you exercise your faith by moving you know, one of the things that I learned early on in going on mission trips is you want to take a flashlight because at night it gets real dark. Like I said, I walked into a tree. All my friends in Africa, I say, you know, most of the people that die in Africa get bitten by a snake. They got big poisonous snakes. I've seen puff adders. Matt's been there. He's seen puff adders. And some of our friends like to chase puff adders, which is, they're crazy. But anyway, when you go out at night, I mean, when you're sleeping on the floor of a hut with somebody, they don't have indoor plumbing. And at night, I may have to go up and go to the bathroom. So you go outside to the outhouse or closest tree, whatever comes first. You take your light, and I'm very careful to look where I step, that I don't step on a snake. Right, Matt? You don't want to step on the snake. Are we careful to follow God's will? He's going to show us as we take that next step. If we've already done what we're talking about here, that we've surrendered our life, that we're reading his word, and our life's being transformed. You know, it's pretty much... I'm going to tell you, you can live your life and do whatever you want because what's in your heart is what the Lord has put there that he wants you to do and you keep moving. There was a book written years ago by Ray Ortland that says you can't walk on water until you get out of the boat. You know, that's true. We have to take that first step. You know, if you're in a boat, a rudder turns that boat, but it won't do a thing if that boat is not moving. So we can sit there and pray all day, Lord, show me your will. What am I supposed to do? And then we just sit there and not do anything. We have to start moving the way that we think the Lord's wanting us to move. And my problem is I want to see what's going to happen at the end of after I follow his will. I want to see the results, right? Isn't that kind of what our fear is sometimes? And if we truly believe God is a good God, and he is, and he loves us, and he does, and he wants good for us, even though it may not feel good at the time, we need to follow God's will. And that's a problem we struggle with a lot today, too, is we're in a culture, it's a lot about feelings. It's not about facts. In a postmodern, post-Christian, post-truth culture, it's about feeling. I, the, the generation that they hear with their eyes and they think with their hearts. And we do that even with God's will. I've counseled people that are struggling in their marriages, friends of mine, meet with them, pray with them, try to help them work through. They're separated from their wife. They're probably already in an affair with somebody else. And, and, and they're Christians, 
and they say they're Christians, they love God, they know Jesus has saved them. And, they, and, I, and I say, what are you doing? And they go, well, I know what God's word says, but it just doesn't feel right. Or you talk to them and they say, well, I know what God's word says, but I don't agree with that. Have you ever heard anybody say that to you? I don't agree with that. I don't agree with God? Am I arrogant enough to think that I know more than God does? I know more than what his word, his revealed word is telling me? Pretty sad commentary. But that's kind of where we are today. He says it's going to be our perfect, accepted will, right? If we follow after him. It's not rocket science. We need to be committed. We need to die to self. Dying to self is not fun. I don't like it. My feet... Three most favorite people, me, myself, and I. I don't like to suffer. I don't like to deny myself. As you notice, I like my ice cream. I don't like to deny myself. But God says, deny yourself and follow me. And I, not to conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of my mind, by reading his word. You know, as I was dating Chris and learning about her, when I got a letter from her, I didn't just throw it in the drawer and say, well, I'll get around to reading that someday. <laughs> I read that as soon as I got it. I read it multiple times over and over and over. It was important to me. Is God's word important to you? And I'm not talking about if you do a devotion in the morning and you read you know, some little book that has a verse and a nice little story and you throw it on, the, on your desk and you go about your day and somebody asks you later in the afternoon, you wouldn't have a clue what you just read. For me, I have to get in God's Word and I have to read it over and over and over because I'm a slow learner. And if I want to memorize it, I need to meditate on it and I need to work through it. You know, meditates like ruminate. You know, you ever see a cow? They go out and they eat their grass. They go out in the morning, they eat, and they lay down and they burp it back up and they chew it. And they burp it back up and they chew it. And they burp it back up and they chew it. They get all the nutritional value out of that by going through that process. That's how I learn God's word. That's how I do. It's a little bit at a time. I read it over and over and over. And I pray about it and I ask the Lord to show me. But I have to meet with him. I have to read his word. I have to be in it. I'll finish up with a story. I drive a truck, right? I got my CDL back in 1978. So I'm an old guy. I've been driving a long time. God's been gracious. I haven't run over too many people and a lot of them need to be run over. But I haven't run over too many. And I used to haul a lot of seed out east in the springtime. I drive a truck mostly when I'm not farming. And was hauling a lot of seed out to Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, Virginia, New York. I've delivered seed on Long Island, New York. They farm out there. And uh, Vermont, Maine, all over. Anyway, um, 1978, kids, there were no cell phones. There was no GPS. I was driving 2,500 to 4,000 miles a week and I used these paper things that fold funny with lines and dots called a map you know what those are? And so at night, when I would park at a truck stop, usually then I'd go in and there's these banks of phones and you wait in line to use a phone. I'd call home and I'd talk to Chris and talk to the kids and tell her about what was going on. She'd tell me what's going on. And then I'd go to bed, plan for my next day. Well, I got in the habit of I carried a book with lots of phone numbers and information in it because of friends that I had that lived in different parts of the country that when I was there, I'd call them to, to meet with them or see them, maybe meet them for a Coke and supper or if I had opportunity. Anyway, I had a, a really good friend who lived in, in D.C. and I was parked at a truck stop right outside D.C. Um, Nancy, I'd gone to school with her my whole life. 
first grade through high school in, at Lexington. Really good friend. She grew up right behind me. Um, we were just good friends. She's really smart. She graduated salutatorian of our class. And uh, we were good friends. She was home in December to see her folks, and she'd called, and we'd talked a little, and she said, hey, if you're out D.C., I'm out there going to Georgetown University. Give me a call. So I had her number, and I called her. She said, hey, guess what? I got a job at the White House. She was going to Georgetown. She was a lawyer. She was working on a graduate degree. She always loved politics, and she'd gotten a job working at the White House as an intern. She goes, I go early in the morning. I can still go do my classes, afternoon, evenings, I can study. She goes, I go early, and she goes, I meet with the president almost every day. One of my jobs is I go at 6 o'clock in the morning, I get his, what he's going to get for breakfast on a cart and coffee and food, and they give me this big binder that I take to him. When the weather's nice, he likes to go out and walk in the, in the rose gardens. He likes to get his exercise. He says he likes to get out and clear his head before all the craziness of the day, before his meetings and stuff. So she goes, I go out there and I take his stuff to him. And she goes, lots of times he just wants to talk and he just wants somebody to be with him. She goes, you know, we've got two Secret Service guys with us, but he just likes to talk about, he knows I'm from Illinois, he like, you know, Eureka, college. So he likes to talk to me. She goes, you want to meet the president? I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I like President Reagan. I thought he's probably one of the better presidents we've had in a long time. You want to meet the president? I'm like, well, sure, but I'm thinking, meet the president. She goes, okay. I said, how are you going to get me to meet the president? She goes, well, I, I have the phone number of the head of the Secret Service. I'll call him. He'll check with NSA. You aren't a terrorist. They're in a warrant out for your arrest. You haven't done anything stupid lately, have you? I'm like, no. She goes, NSA knows everything about you anyway. So they're going to check you out. You come to the front gate at 6.30 in the morning. They'll have a badge for you. And they'll be, have you on the docket. And one of the Secret Service guys will take you and bring you to where we are because they always know where we are. I'm like, great, wonderful. You know? So I walk back to my truck. Well, I'm walking back to my truck and I'm sitting in there. I'm thinking, there's several problems here with this scenario. One, when I'm out on the road for a week, I don't take a suit or good clothes with me. I wear flannel shirts and blue jeans and work boots. So not exactly a tire. You'd probably go meet the president at the White House, right? And then I'm thinking, I'm 20 miles out on the Beltway away from downtown D.C. And also, kids, no Uber in 1978. So I'm going to have to call a taxi. I'm probably going to have to leave at 5 o'clock in the morning to beat all the traffic and to get in town. And then I'm thinking, I'm going to just walk up and go, hey, I'm Ron Miller from Illinois, and I'm here to see the president, and I know Nancy. And, and then it kind of hit me. One of the things you got to know about Nancy is there was a group of five or six of us who went to school together, and we kind of had interesting senses of humor, and we played practical jokes on each other. And I'm thinking, I can just see her now as I walk up to the gate, and I say this, and these guys are like, what have you been smoking? You aren't going to go see the president. And she's going to laugh at me and say, you know, <laughs> great practical joke, gotcha. So I just kind of forgot it, went to bed, I was tired, got up next morning, and actually I sort of forgot about it, just got in my truck. And the other problem was I had an appointment at 8 o'clock in the morning, and people take a real dim view of if you miss your appointments. And I was already going to have over an hour drive, and so if I went to the White House and I had to come back and get in my truck, I was going to be way late for my appointment, so I just forgot about it. So that night I ended up in Hagerstown, Maryland, a park truck stop, go in and call Chris, and she goes, where are you? I'm like, well, I'm in Hagerstown, Maryland. And why? She goes, well, I was just really worried about you because Nancy called this morning and she seemed kind of upset. She was wondering where you were. You better call her. So I call Nancy. And her first words are like, where were you? I'm like, well, I'm in Hagerstown, Maryland. She said, no, where were you this morning? I told President Reagan that you were going to come and then you didn't show up. So if you, 
ever had one of those moments when you feel ill in your stomach, like you want to throw up and it goes clear down to your toes? I had one of those moments. I stood up the President of the United States. How many of you can claim fame to that, right? But as I'm walking back to my truck, you know, feeling lower in a snake's belly in a wagon wheel, right? There's that still small voice. I think it's the Holy Spirit. I know it's the Holy Spirit. It says, you're all worried about standing up President of the United States. That's a big deal. But every morning, you have the opportunity to meet with the God of the universe who made everything and made you. And his son came and died to pay for the penalty of your sin. And you blow it off lots of mornings. He wants to meet with you. He loves you. He really wants to hear from you. And you could care less. I tell you folks, after that, when in the mornings, <laughs> I'm reminded of meeting with God and reading his And I hope that that challenges you too that we need to be in God's Word. We need to die to self. We need to have transformed lives. And we need to follow God's will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time this morning, for your love for us, for your care for us. May we not take that for granted. May we not take for granted even our country and the love that you have for us. And Lord, if someone here doesn't know you as their Savior, Lord, first of all, I pray that your Spirit would be challenging them and working in their life. And Lord, for the many of us here that know you and say we love you, Lord, we'd be re-challenged again to make you Lord of our life, that we would follow you and seek after you. And even though it's hard, daily, intentionally die to self and follow after you and your word, may we be challenged to be the men and women, the salt and light you've called us to be. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I have one disclaimer that Jesus used parables to teach, right? To get your attention. I didn't stand up the president of the United States. <laughs> I did have a friend, Nancy, who did work at the White House. She did interact with the president regularly, but I never got invited. So I don't want you to say, Ron Miller is such an idiot. He stood up the president of the United States. But I guarantee you, tomorrow morning, when you're thinking about your, hopefully, your Bible reading, you'll think, whoa, the God of the universe wants to meet with me, and I, I don't want to stand him up.